0: Welcome to Built To Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time, it's episode 122, and we're going to talk about pets in vans. How to travel with pets, which pets to travel with, or do you even really want to do this? You might, you might not. We're also going to talk about portable gas grills, a tale from the road involving a plane crash, and a product review of Chromebooks. Are these little laptops actually great for van life? Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Thanks very much for listening. Folks, I need your help. I am in a state now where if there is something you would like me to talk about on this show... Please send it along to me at jeff at That's two T's, not three, not one. And I will address it on the show. I'm currently in the final stages of planning for this cruise. We just bought this property. I bought a tractor. I've got the tiki Bago going on. I just have, and I am no longer thinking about the podcast all week like I normally do. My goal is to get back to that. But for right now, you could help me out by throwing me some things you'd like me to talk about, because heck, I'll talk about anything, whether I know anything about it or not, apparently. At any rate, one thing I have never done that I'm going to talk about this week is having a pet in a van. Now, if you were to just take all your van life information from Instagram, you would assume that every van comes with at least one dog. It's either in the back, or it's in the glove box, or it's tied to the bumper, or somewhere every van has a dog. And indeed, so many people do van life with dogs that they can't imagine doing it any other way. And I'm not here to tell them differently. What I am going to do, though, is talk about the realities of having pets in a van, and if you're thinking about it, what you should prepare for. Because while I don't travel with a pet myself, I have traveled with pets, I've owned many pets, and I've learned a thing or two about what can happen and the problems people have run into. So, first, let's talk about what kind of pet you want to travel with. Now, a lot of folks already have pets, and they're just going to travel with that. So whatever they have, they're going to make it work, and that's fine. But if you're heading out and thinking about getting a pet, here are some things to think about. We're only going to talk about three kinds of pet here. If you're going to get a tarantula or a tree frog or a lizard or something like that, yeah, you can do those things. I'm not going to talk about them. But I am going to talk about dogs, cats, and birds, three types of pet that I've actually owned. I've actually owned the others too, but that's another story. So, dogs, most common, right? And you would think that since you have limited space in your van, you would want a smaller dog, and there is some truth to that. But there's another truth, and it's a little counterintuitive, and that is that... Little dogs need more space, and that's because they tend to need more room to let off energy. Little dogs, for whatever reason, tend to be more highly strung. They need to run around a lot. They need more space. And they can be more yippy. I know that's a stereotype. I know not all dogs are like that. I have met some amazingly cute, quiet, cuddly little dogs. But it's something to consider larger breeds basically lie around a lot more and they might actually adapt to van life better. So consider that. Don't spend so much time on thinking of, I want a Norwegian blue shed hound. And you know, the breed isn't the thing. You want to find the right dog with the right temperament. And a lot of times bigger dogs are better in smaller spaces. What about cats? Well, The thing with cats is they tend to be somewhat stubborn. (laughs) Anybody who has tried to put a leash or a harness on an adult cat understands this very, very well. But as kittens, they're malleable. And the most successful cats living in vans that I have seen or heard of are those that were raised in vans. If you get a kitten and you raise it in the van environment, it's just going to think of it as normal. And if you do this, I urge you as early as possible to start harness training the cat. Cats are social animals, but they're not as social as dogs, and you wouldn't hate for your cat to escape and get out into the world and you not be able to get it back. So if it leaves the van, I highly recommend that you have it on a harness. And the way to get cats to accept harnesses is to get them in them early so they think of it as normal. It can be done, and in some ways it's more convenient. With dogs, you have to stop and let them use the restroom, which is like the entire world to a dog, every so often. And with cats, well, they kinda bring their restroom with them wherever they go. And there are many tips and tricks for hiding cat boxes and dealing with cat boxes in the van. I am not gonna go into that right now, but I will tell you there are solutions for that. So if that's your big concern, know that there are solutions. Now, what about birds? Yes, you can have a bird in a van. You have to be concerned about them flying away, obviously, but that's true if you have them in homes, too. You can't let them out the window, that type of a thing. So you're probably going to have a cage for one. But if you have a tamed bird, like sometimes tamed parrots people will just let loose, or they have clipped wings or whatever, yeah, that's fine, too. You're going to have to clean up some mess, but... Birds don't seem to mind van life all that much. From what I've seen, they're pretty happy about it. Tricky part is when you're stopped and camping, what do you do? Do you let them outside? Do you have like an outdoor cage? And I think the biggest problem with birds is, well, they're very, very messy. It doesn't matter what kind of bird you have. They make messes everywhere. If you ever watched a bird if you ever watch a bird eat, they are the messiest eaters in the world. And yeah, okay, their food is dry, but it's gonna be everywhere. So make sure you understand that and you're ready for it. Okay, so you've picked out your pet. You're going to get one of those three because that fits into my narrative nicely. What do you have to worry about with those pets? The thing that most people think of right away is temperature. Vans are vehicles. They sit in the sun. They get super hot or they sit in the cold and they get super cold. Basically, if you have a pet in your van, it's occupied you have to think of it as though you're in the van you have to have some sort of heat and cooling in there for the animal now the heat part is relatively easy you can just heat it with a diesel heater or some other heater whatever you're heating with that's fine that's not going to be that big of a deal but the cooling can be a very very big deal i've seen many people think they're going to start van life get that lovely 12 volt air conditioner and leave it on for their pets and Yeah, that doesn't work. That isn't a thing. Teslas and Priuses and some other vehicles have a pet mode where you can leave the car sort of running and keep the animals cool in the back. But I have yet to see a van that has anything like that. And leaving your van idling while your pets are in there is never a good idea. So what do you do for cooling? Well, the simplest answer is is that you don't. You don't leave your pet in the vehicle if it's hot outside. You bring it with you, which is fairly easy for a dog. Somewhat easy for a cat on a leash. Not so easy for a bird, necessarily. Or you try to be places where it isn't hot. So... Yeah, you are constantly going to be worried about the temperature of your van if you have pets. Just be aware of that. And that leads to the second problem, and, and really the overarching problem of having pets, which is that pets will restrict you. You won't be able to do certain things because you have a pet in your van. For example, it's four o'clock in the afternoon on a sunny day, and your dog is laying under the van and very happy, and a friend comes by and says, hey, let's go to the movies you're not going to be able to go. You can't bring the dog to the movies. You can't leave the dog unattended. Going to the movies like that isn't something you can do. If you want to go to the movies, you have to plan it out. You have to find someone to watch the dog. Or you have to go to a drive-in or something like that. Again, there are solutions for everything, but you should be aware of the challenges. Also, a lot of parks and campgrounds don't allow dogs. Some of them have never even considered cats, so there may not be a law against that. And birds, well, yeah. Birds can be even trickier because sometimes there are restrictions about things like bringing birds places because birds can carry avian flu, which is a big deal right now. In fact, in Illinois, they've just asked everyone to take down their bird feeders to help stop the spread of avian flu, which has killed hundreds of thousands of poultry birds and it's actually turned into quite a big deal. So, lots to think about there. Temperature is definitely going to be one of your biggest issues. Food, well, food isn't that big of an issue. Obviously, pets are going to take up more storage. You're not only going to need more space for the pet, you're going to need space for their bedding, or their cage, or their perch, and their toys, and their food. Suddenly you have two food supplies to worry about, and it's not the biggest deal in the world, but you have to be very careful with it because that food can attract unwanted critters like mice and raccoons and bears, depending on where you are. So it's something else you have to think about. Also, if you're the kind of person that feeds your pets specific food, like something very specific, and I know a lot of pet owners do this and that if you change the animal's food, it causes problems for the animal, that can be an issue too, because if you run out of food and say you're camping near the Grand Canyon, you may not be able to find their kind of food, whereas you, a human, can be a little bit more adaptable. Just things to think about. What about a very important issue is, will your pet be happy in a van? Now, dogs seem to adapt to van life pretty readily. They just want to be with their owner. They don't care where you are or what you're doing. They want to be with the owner. That's how most dogs are. So one way to do that is to let them be with you. I have seen some van builds where they have a crate in the back, and the crate is under the bed, and they put the dog in the crate under the bed, and then they go out and see the world. And the dog's kinda miserable back there. I mean, it's not the worst situation, but the dog would much, much rather be up with you guys up front. And there are ways to do that. You can build a crate type of thing between the driver's seats in some cases you can have the dog in a kind of a dog car seat that is a thing that exists or if you're traveling solo with a pet what i've seen several people do is remove the passenger seat completely make sure you understand how to do that there are some unexpected complications with that and they put a dog crate or some other dog seat right there where the passenger seat was these are going to be the the happiest ways to travel with your dog your cat probably doesn't care as much, and your bird, well, I don't know. <laughs> to be completely honest, I figure you want to have your bird in a cage while you're driving. Because there's an issue with having pets in your vehicle while it's moving that I don't think enough people pay attention to, and that is that pets can interfere with you driving. If you're going down the highway and something jumps in your lap or gets under your feet you can be in real danger. I mean, imagine this scenario. Something spooks your cat, your cat runs up, jumps on your shoulder with full claws, and you're like, ah, so the van starts swerving, and then the cat jumps underneath the steering wheel and gets in between the brake pedal and your van. You go to step on the brakes, you're actually stepping on the cat, and yeah, you can imagine how bad that situation can be. So pets should be secured while you're driving, and they will be happiest if they can be with you. Now about crate training, this is more of a dog thing than anything else, But some dogs can be trained to love their crate. Their crate is their happy little safe cave that they like to be in. And that's the best possible situation. You say crate, the dog goes into its crate and isn't unhappy about it. In fact, you may be able to keep the dog in there with the door open because they like it that much. While you're traveling, you would keep the door closed. But if you can do that with your dog, that's going to be best for you and the dog. There's no question. What about security? Dogs, as I've said many times, are great security. People do not want to mess with a van with a dog in it, no matter what size that dog is. It's probably your best defense. Not that your dog is necessarily going to attack somebody. It's just that people don't want to deal with dogs if they're up to no good. So that's good. But what if somebody tries to steal your dog? And yes, that does happen. There are people who drive around and see a cute dog and just take it. It's baffling to me, but it does happen. Well, so yeah, that's something you're going to have to worry about with your pets. You're also going to have to worry about people being concerned about the welfare of your pets. And maybe they're well-meaning people that basically want to do what's best for the pet without considering that you've already got that handled. So you run to the grocery store because you're out of milk. You leave your dog in the back for five minutes because you think, hey, it's going to be okay. You've got your max air fan on. You've checked the temperature back there is only 80. It's fine. Somebody sees your dog in the van and they call the cops or they break a window to let the dog out. Or, anyway, those kind of things can and do happen. And it's something you're going to have to deal with. Some folks who do this will have a sign that says, this is my dog, Archie. Archie is fine. I will be back in two minutes. Please don't break my window. <laughs> something like that. But th- that may not be enough for some people. So you're always going to have an issue. And finally, one of the the things that I've seen a lot is pet health. What if your pet gets sick when you're on the road? Now, like with humans, they typically have a doctor they go to. Uh, I know with our cats, we have a vet that we go to. It's our vet. They know the cats. We know the vet. Everything's great. But if we were to take our cats on the road with us in the van, which isn't something we're planning on doing well, then we would have to find a vet somewhere. And, you know, it's not like you can just go to the emergency room and they're open 24 hours a day. You have to find a vet. And if it's an emergency, you have to find an emergency vet. And that could be a lot of work and it could be very, very stressful. So if you're going to go someplace for a while, like let's say you're going to go hang out at the same spot for a week, why don't you just do a little research and figure out where the closest vet is? I think just for your own peace of mind, that would be worth doing. I am not here to tell you not to travel with pets, of course. I've said this several times. I like dogs. I like cats. I like pets. I personally choose not to travel with pets because I am busy doing other things. I I don't feel like I have enough time to give to a pet that would be fair to the pet. So I choose not to. But I know many, many, many people do, and I totally support you in doing that. But if you're someone new to this, who's thinking about it, make sure you know what you're getting into. It is not as simple as grabbing a dog and hitting the road. You really do have to plan. Tech talk. So I got suckered. I didn't, I shouldn't say, I didn't quite get suckered. I saw the cutest grill and I thought, wow, that thing's cute. Now I'm not a, a big sucker for cute things, but this thing's really cute. It's it's called the Cuisinart Venture. And imagine a lunch box, a traditional lunch pail, like a Yogi Bear style lunchbox, if you're old enough to know who Yogi Bear is. Never mind Yogi Bear. Uh yeah, imagine that. But it's red with a bamboo top, and it's not lunch pail, lunch basket. It is a complete grill for barbecuing or grilling or whatever you call it outside of your van. And it's it's really cool. I'll have a link in the show notes because I'm going to try to describe it, but that only works so well. But it you take the lid off and that becomes a cutting board and like a table to put stuff on. And then there's the grill. And underneath the grill, there's a place to store a one pound propane bottle. Basically, it's a self-contained grill and you can cook four kebabs on it at one time. That's how big it is. And you're that's it. It's all one thing. It's just one piece, everything you need, no hoses, no extra stuff. Well, I guess you need utensils. But other than that, you're ready to go and grill, and I thought, boy, that's so cute and great, and how perfect for van life. It, it folds up into this nice, neat, clean package and then just goes in the back of your van or wherever. It doesn't have any wheels to deal with. There's no charcoal. There's no rocks or stones or any of that, but I didn't buy it, partially because it was about $200, partially because I actually already have a portable grill. I have that traditional Weber portable grill that's actually quite large. I don't really travel with it very much, but I do have it set up outside the Tiki Bago right now. And then I found there was this other one from Coleman, and I actually think this one is probably smarter. Now this this is called the Coleman Fold and Go Insta Start. And both of these, I like that you just turn the knob and they start. They're they're like those butane stoves. You just turn them and they start. You don't have to use a match or anything. I don't know why that bugs me, but it does. But the Coleman Fold and Go Instastart is basically a modification of the classic green Coleman stoves. Not the square ones, the ones that are kind of round. They basically turn that into a grill and it works very much the same way. It is not as self-contained as the Cuisinart one. You do have a metal tube coming out that it connects to the propane bottle, but it folds into kind of a pancake shape, and I think it fits very well in vans, and it might make more sense partially because it's $100 cheaper (laughs) than the Cuisinart, and it's also a little cute. Its grill area is a different shape. It's a square where the other is a rectangle, and I don't think that would matter very much. But again, I I haven't tried either of these. I'm just bringing up the idea that, hey... If you like to grill, if you like to barbecue, and you want to use propane, you don't want to lug around charcoal or find twigs and sticks, both are ways that you can actually grill outside your van, either of these would be cool. So if you're driving a $150,000 van, heck, go ahead and get the Cuisinart. You can afford it. If you're driving a more affordable van and you want something reliable and small but maybe not as cute or self-contained, I would recommend the Coleman Fold & Go Instastart. They're just a couple of things to add to your cooking repertoire outside. I don't know why I got off on this jag, probably because I just saw that cute grill by Cuisinart, but I figured, what the heck, I would share the cuteness with you and let you do what you'd like to do. Tales from the Road Way back in the day, there used to be an airline called National Airlines, and they left from Dulles Airport. And I, at the time, lived right down the street from Dulles Airport, actually, in, uh, well, Leesburg Township, Virginia. The neighborhood was called Watson, which was also part of Arcola. Uh, It's kind of complicated. It was called a bunch of different things. But it was just north of the airport, just north of Chantilly on US-50, if you're familiar with the area. At any rate... I would fly to Vegas fairly often because that was my thing at the time. I just liked Vegas. This was back in the days where everything was heavily themed, where they had an Egyptian boat ride at Luxor. They had a gondola ride at Venetian. They had volcanoes at Mirage and a big pirate ship at Treasure Island. Most of those things are gone now. But I needed to get from Virginia to Vegas, and I did not want to drive all the time. So I would fly, and I would fly National Airlines, which was a fun uh, airline that was trying to be up and coming that no longer exists, because that's how things go in the airlines industry. At any rate, I was on one of their planes, it was a brand new plane, it was very comfortable, and we make it over to vegas and there's a part when you're flying west into vegas where you go over the mountains that it's pretty rough there's almost always turbulence over this one part and just after we pass that turbulence a friendly voice comes over the intercom and says well folks we've got some news for you it seems that our flaps are not working properly and we're going to have to do an emergency landing We will have to land at a higher speed than normal, and that could cause us some problems. The brakes might catch on fire, or something like that. So don't be alarmed if you see flames coming out of the wheels, or if you see emergency vehicles following us down the runway. We'll be on the ground shortly. Now I heard this and thought, hmm, that guy's nonchalant attitude actually communicated more than what the problem was, although I I understood what the problem was. Flaps are these things that make the wings bigger, basically. And if you've ever watched how wings change as you're landing in an airplane, you can see this happen. Out of the back of the wings comes basically another wing, and it just makes the wing longer, or, or wider, depending on how you're looking at it. And that makes more air go over the wings and under the wings, and that makes the plan capable of going slower, which is what you want when you're landing, because the ultimate goal is to stop. We weren't going to be able to do that, though. In order to stay airworthy and not stall, we were going to have to go at a higher rate of speed. So we were going to have to land nearly twice as fast as we wanted to. Okay, I understand that all technically, and I understand why the brakes could overheat and catch fire. But what I didn't understand was what was going on on the plane around me. Now there was immediately a little bit of chatter, but it wasn't panic. Nobody was freaking out. The masks didn't drop from the ceiling. Nobody assumed crash positions or anything like that, which I think they've given up on crash positions. I haven't seen that referred to in an awfully long time on planes. But the flight attendant, and there was only one as this was a very small plane, was losing it. They were not running around crazy or anything, but they were in one of those jump seats where they faced the entire plane, and he picked up the intercom and said, ladies and gentlemen, please prepare for landing, put your tray tables up, and all that kind of stuff. And then I watched his face, and he was in complete terror. This poor guy was having the worst day of his life. And while that's sad and regrettable and I feel bad for him, he was also communicating this emotion and mood to everybody on the plane, who otherwise was thinking this was a routine emergency, not really that big of a deal. But if you were to watch the flight attendant, you'd think, we're dead. We're never going to make this. This is going to be the end. And so... I started to have those thoughts a little bit. It's like the captain said this one thing and I technically understand it and I can see why this could be a problem but it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. And yet the flight attendant who theoretically flies all the time and knows more than I do is not doing well with this news. So I had to weigh how much I knew or thought I knew versus how much I knew knew or thought I knew that the flight attendant knew. And I decided that This was a small airline, flight attendant may not have been on the job very long, and I was going to dismiss the flight attendant. Because, (laughs) why not? (laughs) The flight attendant was giving me discomfort, and there was really nothing I could do about the situation anyway. Whether we were all about to die, or this was going to be no big deal, I'm going to be sitting in this seat. (laughs) That's what's going to happen. So I didn't, like, send off messages to my loved ones or write my last will and testament or anything. I just sat there like I would normally and looked out the window. And I noticed that we were going fast. I mean, I could feel the difference in speed as we approached the ground. The ground was moving much faster, and we got lower, it seemed to me, much sooner than we would have. It was like they were trying to line up in the right place, because they knew they were only going to have one chance at this. And we hit the runway, and it was actually not that different from a normal landing, except that we were going very fast, and instantly all these fire engines appeared out of nowhere and started chasing us down the runway. Not very successfully, I might add. <laughs> we were going very fast, and they were not catching up at all. <laughs> and we stopped, we slowed down, the braking was kind of hard, we were kind of pushed against our seatbelts, and then... We pulled into the gate and got off the plane, and it was like nothing ever happened. (laughs) No, really, that's it. That's my crash landing story. It wasn't a crash landing. It was an emergency landing, but it was fine. And so what I learned from that was, well, if you're ever in one of these situations, it doesn't matter. (laughs) You're going to do what you do. Everything's fine. I decided to sit there and take in the scenery, and hey, if you wanted to yell and scream, I guess that would be okay too. But what you do will affect others, and I think that flight attendant could have used a little bit of training, or perhaps reassurance, because had they known what I know, they might not have been quite so scared of what was going on. Product review. So years ago, probably four years ago now, I bought a Chromebook, and if you're not familiar with these, they're little, inexpensive, lightweight laptops that are basically Google Chrome web browser and nothing else. I mean, they that's really basically it. They don't have an OS to speak of. Basically, Chrome is the OS. So they're not Macs, and they're not PCs. But if you think about it, nearly everything we do, or most of us anyway, is done online in a web browser. So everything you can do in a web browser, you can do on the Chromebook. Now, why would you want a Chromebook versus a PC or a Mac? Well, first answer is price. These things are much less expensive. They're also, in my experience, very tough, very lightweight, and very easy to charge. Now, there's different companies making these. I'm not recommending a specific one. I'm just talking about the concept of Chromebooks. So when you get one of these things, they're instant on. You lift it open, and boom, you're in the web browser. And everything you can do in the web, you can do on this machine. But you don't have to be online. I mean, obviously, if you're going to go check out a website you've never been to before, you need to be online. But if you were, say, typing a letter in Google Docs or whatever, which I'll talk about a bit more in the podcast, you can do all that offline. And then as soon as the computer gets online, you're good to go. Now, there's a couple of benefits about this thing. Literally everything you do on the Chromebook is stored online, everything. So if this got stolen or lost or broke, you could literally go buy another one and type in a few things and be right back where you left off. There's no need to back anything up. It's always backed up, always online. Now, there are some drawbacks. You are then married to Chrome, and if you don't like Google for whatever reason, this is absolutely not a solution for you. The hardware is inexpensive, but it's not all that great. You're not going to get a Mac-like or a Microsoft Surface-like experience from one of these things. And you can't do any complicated work. Like if you want to edit videos or use a really robust photo editing program or store a lot of stuff... This isn't a solution for you. It does have a little bit of storage on it, but not much. You're certainly not going to put 100 gigs of photos on this thing. And yeah, you can attach a USB drive or something like that, but then it gets all kinds of complicated. I think these make a great second computer. They make a great computer that, like, lives in your van. If you have another computer for work, you can just kind of leave this one in the van. I leave mine in the van. I found it super helpful sometimes when I just, oh, darn, I need to look something up. I don't want to, like, set up my main computer. I just want to grab something and look it up online. It works great for that. I can use my phone as a hotspot, and boom, I have a full-size keyboard and access to the web, and I can do whatever I want on it. So... Think about it. A Chromebook might be a good solution for your van life. Take a look at the different makers and see what you think. A place to visit. You may not have heard of this. If you're from New England, you probably have. It is called the Desert of Maine. Now, Maine, as many of us know, is our northernmost continental U.S. state, and it's kind of wild up there. There's a lot of it that's almost unexplored. It's, as far as New England goes, it is definitely the most rural part, and it, it rivals some of the most rural parts anywhere in the U.S., but not this part. The desert of Maine is in Freeport, Maine, and that is right in the heart of where all the people are. It's near L.L. Bean, it's near all the shopping, the Indian there that is called the BFI, if you want to fill in the initials. All that stuff is right up there in Freeport. And then, in the middle of it, there's a desert. And this desert has been a tourist attraction for probably a hundred years now. So how is there a desert in this very wet, very forested part of the country? Well, the answer is, there isn't. But what there is, is an area that is acres and acres and acres of very deep sand. So imagine a forest, and imagine someone dumped, oh, a million truckloads of sand into. And the sand covered the trees, and filled up the forest, and buried the trees, and everything else. That's what you have here. Except that the sand didn't come from the sky... It came from the ground. The geology of this place is kind of fascinating. Glaciers came down and ground rock and mountains and everything they came in contact with into sand, fairly fine sand. It's coarse compared to beach sand, which this is not. And then it deposited that sand wherever it could. And then that sand got compressed. First, the glaciers compressed it. And then the soil that gradually formed over thousands of years kept that sand down. Then European immigrants came to the area and started farming. And some of them didn't do a very good job of farming, and they ended up using up their soil, and the soil went down and down and down, and suddenly the soil wasn't enough to keep that compressed sand in place, and boom, all that sand started to creep up. And it crept up like 30 feet. It swallowed farmhouses and barns and trees and everything in the area, leaving what is now the tourist attraction the Desert of Maine. And when you visit this place, you'll you'll learn this history, and you'll see all this kitschy stuff, and there's a big gift shop, and you take a little sand buggy tour and go visit it. And you know what? Yes, it's a tourist trap, but it's kind of a fun one because you get to take these weird images that you can't anywhere else, and you have to get in to do that. There's this huge fence around it, so you can't take any pictures at all unless you pay admission. But when you get in there, you've got sand dunes with pine trees sticking out of them. It's, it's kind of interesting and kind of unique. So, yeah, go ahead and check it out. It's called the Desert of Maine. I'll have a link in the show notes. It's in Freeport, Maine, fairly easy to get to from anywhere in New England. And I think it's a lot of fun as long as you understand that you're overpaying to see a natural phenomenon that actually isn't a desert at all. Resource Recommendation So this ties into the Chromebook discussion there. I'm pretty sure everybody knows about Google Docs, but I'm going to give them a plug, because I just had an experience where the value of Google Docs was proven to me. Google Docs is like, quote-unquote, Microsoft Word for the web, which actually is a thing that exists now. But in my opinion, Google Docs is better, because they have designed a suite of apps that's basically word processing and spreadsheets and presentations and a bunch of other things for use in a web browser, whereas Microsoft Office for the web is a desktop app that's been modified to work in a web browser, and in my opinion, not very well. Google Docs always works very well, and here's why I'm a big fan of it today. I accidentally left my Mac somewhere, and it's fine, it's not stolen or anything, I just don't have access to it. And I am working on all these documents for this upcoming cruise. And suddenly, well, they're all on my Mac and I can't get at them. And I, but wait a minute, I do them all in Google Docs. So it doesn't matter. I can get on any computer in the world, log in to Google Docs, and there are all my documents. That's how a Chromebook works, but it's also how all computers work if you use Google Docs. Google Docs is not the most robust thing in the world as far as features. It has more features than you might expect, but of course Microsoft Word and Microsoft Excel have more features, Excel especially. There really isn't a rival for Microsoft Excel on the PC as far as powerful spreadsheets go. But the stuff you can do in Google Docs, I would say is more than enough for 95% of folks, and it's free. There aren't even any ads. So heck, if you don't have a Google docs account, um, which is just your Google accounts, same account as your YouTube account, actually, I, I definitely think you should check it out. Whew. Well, folks, I <laughs> may have gone a little bit long this week, but there was a lot to talk about again. Thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate it. We're 122 episodes in, and I am shocked that people are still listening to me. <laughs> so thank you. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember this anonymous quote I found painted over on a fireplace mantel in Larchmont, New York. I will tell a story about that. And that quote was, We love all flowers, most dogs, and some people.